Welcome back. Gavin Riley with you on the record until one o'clock this lunchtime. Joined as ever by Donald Fallon for Hidden Histories. Good afternoon, Donald. Good How to be here. Good to be here. Uh, we have not gone down the usual massively historical road around the whole decade of centenaries or anything for this lunchtime slot. We've gone for something a little bit different. And no, it's not actually to celebrate the dubs five in a row, which is now an achievement for which that song has been indelibly linked uh, forevermore. That is, of course, the opening bars to uh, The Boys Are Back in Town by Tin Lizzy. Uh, this week we're talking about the history of Tin Lizzy because on Post have released uh, a new series of stamps commemorating what they perceive to be the golden jubilee of Tin Lizzy's formation. We'll talk about why that might not be correct uh, in a little while. They are, of course, remembered today for hits like The Boys Are Back in Town, for Jailbreak, for Dancing in the Moonlight. Uh, it was a story, though, of, of ups and downs, of achievements uh, and great challenges and I suppose Donald that these stamps are as much about design history yeah. as much as they are about musical yeah. history you have to be careful when you talk about Tin Lizzy not to fall into the into the pitfall of talking exclusively about Phil Lynott yeah. you know, and, the, and the story of this band is not exclusively uh, the story of Phil I mean Phil was brilliant uh, charismatic tragic all of those things and only 36 years of age uh, at oh, the time of his yeah. passing which is which is incredible and these stamps honour him in fact one of them depicts him but they're also a very I suppose fitting tribute to the, the artistic brilliance of, of Jim Fitzpatrick mm. who was the the Dublin-born artist responsible for a lot of Tin Lizzy's very iconic uh, imagery. And right throughout their career, you know, from Vagabonds of the Western World onwards, it was really Jim Fitzpatrick's kind of iconic uh, imagery that captured the essence uh, of the band. And, you know, sometimes he kind of borrowed from sci-fi inspiration. Sometimes it was from the Gaelic past. And one of these new stamps is what I consider maybe the greatest Irish LP cover ever. Oh, big call. Which is the the Black Rose. And in describing that Black Rose, Fitzpatrick said... Philip wanted me to try to create, quite literally, a black rose for the cover of the album of the same title. It was really difficult as I wanted more than just a rose. I wanted something that reflected Philip's love of the poem Dark Rosaline Mm. by James Clarence Mangan. There was lighting in my blood, my Dark Rosaline. So there was was a real sense of the past Mm. living in Tin Lizzy, you know, as much as being about the future. Uh, A lot of people of the modern day might not realise actually that Jim Fitzpatrick was responsible for a lot of that artwork, but they would recognise another very famous portrait on a global stage. I think his, his place in pop culture historically everywhere uh, is eternally secure because he is the man who transformed a photograph of, of Che Guevara Ernesto Che Guevara mm. into that kind of high contrast monochrome image that is now one of the most recognisable yeah. images mm. in the world every every teenager has worn it on a t-shirt yeah. well, it was I, I was in Havana last summer and it's, it's remarkable that it's not even the photograph that you see everywhere it is that sort of monochrome print yeah, of his face that you see everywhere and Fitzpatrick yeah. never took copyright on it uh, when he put it out he said he just wanted it to go everywhere and it did go everywhere and you know it's probably somewhere between the crucifix and McDonald's Golden Arches in terms of you know a recognisable symbol on the world stage mm. and Jim has talked about it he said every shop that's stocked that poster was threatened or harassed in the very fashionable Brown Thomas on Grafton Street which sold posters in those faraway days a well turned out lady bought the entire stock tore them up all to pieces in front of the astonished staff and walked out the door I'd say she regrets that now because they're very collectible uh, posters I'd say Brown Thomas weren't too bothered though because as long as she actually <laughs> paid for them before she, she tore them up then she could do whatever she likes with her own property I wonder if Jim is getting royalties actually for the uh, the images on the stamps uh, that's a question I might put to him on Twitter a little bit later on Well, he, he eventually got copyright off the Guevara image okay. uh, and he gave it to the family eternally oh, so he eventually managed to get it That's a nice touch uh, Now I mentioned that there's been some controversy around the timing of the stamps Explain that to us Yeah the band's former manager Terry O'Neill has been in the press this week and he's insisting that Tin Lizzy did not actually begin playing together until 1970 and ah, that it was okay. you know, well into 1970 uh, when the name was decided upon but the genesis of the band 
is definitely found in late 1969. You know, meetings of mind were afoot. The formation of what would become Tin Lizzy uh, was happening. Mm. But you know, on an academic level, I suppose O'Neill is right. And he's argued that on post, not for the first time, may have got the dates wrong uh, on this one. Okay, so if, if he's if he's correct from an academic perspective, then we'll, we'll take the historian's word in it and we'll, we'll actually, we'll just abandon this slot and do it again next yeah. year. <laughs> um, the, the origins of the band uh, were actually in different musical scenes, including, uh, of course, as would be the, the, the case in the late 1960s, the show band. Yeah, which was a massive scene and, and the brilliant social history of the show band scene, that wonderful book, Send Them Home Sweating, you know, really captures how important that scene was for a lot of, a lot of young people that were coming through. And I think the genesis of the band is this relationship between Phil Linnett uh, and Brian Downey. He's, he's sometimes overlooked. He's the other constant of the band. You know, he's the, the drummer yeah. uh, from Crumlin. And Downey had been through many different bands in what was called the beat club scene of the 1960s. Uh, and they were very influenced by the Beatles, what was happening in England. So mm. in Liverpool, the newspaper which reported on the Beatles and the scene around them was called the Mersey Beat. Yes, yeah. Brian Downey's band was called the Liffey Beat, you know, which was a real okay. nod uh, yeah. in that direction. But it was the time of beat bands, of show bands. And they had this great dance hall scene all across Dublin you know where young musicians were gigging their way uh, across Ireland so Lynnett and Downey were in contact with each other from their school days and though their musical tastes were different they were eventually brought back together um, tell, talk to me about Phil Linnett's childhood obviously this is a, a different time so there aren't as many black kids knocking around Dublin how was it for a young black kid growing up in Crumlin? I live up in Kimmage these days right beside Crumlin and I remember chatting to someone about this locally and they said that there was Phil Linnett and there was another black fella not too far away and he was known locally as the other fella so <laughs> <laughs> so that's right, there really weren't that's many says, of them. That says everything about the the ethnic mixing pot that was Crumlin, yeah. you know, at this time. But Lynnett's upbringing in Crumlin is is a very happy one. You know, he's raised by his his grandmother, and he arrives there at seven years of age uh, from Mossside in Manchester. So you're the mixed race baby of a young Irish migrant mm. who'd gone to England. And the Crumlin that he grows up with, it's a very close knit working class community of growing families. And his greatest biographer, this guy uh, Graham Thompson, interviewed people kind of who grew up around Phil and said, you know, what was it like for him? How did he make himself? fit in and I think Graham nails it he says like many whose roots might be open to question before they open their mouths Lynnett became or Lynnett seemed to become more Irish more Dublin more Southside than those who had been born and raised there yeah. and that's often the case Irish migrants in Britain uh, were much the same so he made himself a part of his surroundings um, His bass guitar um, had an interesting former owner Who's yeah, that? and this brings us back to artists again. We talked about Jim Fitzpatrick at the beginning. The bass guitar that Phil Lennon would really come to make his own had formerly been owned by the artist Robbie Balla. And really? people remember really? Bo- uh, Bobby Balla as the man yeah. who gave us the Riverdance set, the last pump yeah. notes. But do, uh, do people some... associate him as being a musician in his own right? No, though? but he was once upon a time. Bobby was a member of the Chess Men, who were a great show band. So he makes a living, uh, Phil Lennon, playing this instrument that costs £36 that is bought from mm. Bobby Balla. That's a and lot of money in the late 60s. It's a lot of money back then. And he's in a, a, a band called the Black Eagles, uh, alongside Downey but the name Tin Lizzy is fantastic yes explain, the, explain this to us because most people wouldn't realise that there is a kind of a logic behind where that came it's from it's taken from a character in the dandy uh, the comic book Tin Lizzy T-I-N Lizzy and I suppose it's a play on the fact that as listeners will have gathered by now listening to me yeah. there is no H in the Dublin accent it's just non-existent <laughs> yeah, yeah. so the beginnings of the band are, are very much disputed so that's where the name comes from and the first gig happens on either the 16th, the 19th or the 20th of February okay. uh, near Dublin Airport, which is a long way uh, from Crumlin. What we do know for a fact is that the first single is called The Farmer. It arrives in July 1970. Uh, the, ba- the name of the band is spelled differently on the front and it sells an underwhelming 283 copies. So that is a very much sought after collector's piece yeah, today. But particularly a band from, from urban Dublin uh, writing a song about a farmer as well. So I'd love to know what sort of <laughs> cultural tropes they're dealing with there. Um, 1970s Dublin, in which they, they do all their, their business 
business. Uh, it has little money, but what it loses in, in wealth, it makes yeah, up for an attitude. Yeah, it's a broke but exciting place to be young. You have Zavagos, which is kind of near Lower Baggett Street. Mm. Uh, its advertising slogan was brilliant. It's at the place where love stories begin. Ah. And that's where Tin Lizzy attract the attention uh, of Decca, Decca Records. And by December of 1970, the band are actually, you know, they, they're on the road. I mean, they're sailing for, for London. So in the same year that they've begun playing music, they're on the way to London, which is extraordinary. Mm. And some in the UK, you know, including the, the legendary DJ, John Peel, kind of set up and paid attention to this young Dublin band. But success, you know, was still a distant dream. Given all the musical heritage and everything that went into it, and they were clearly so creative, and then you listen back to their back catalogue and they, they had so many hits, it, it must have really galled them that their breakthrough hit was a cover. Yes, yes. And we made the right decision opening on what we did today. The yeah. boys are back in town and not Whiskey in the Jar because it was Whiskey in the Jar 1972 that propels this band into kind of popular consciousness here and in Britain. And it charts, you know, right across Europe. And it's really frustrating for Phil. And when you read the interviews at the time, he's quite annoyed by this. Nobody wants to be known for a cover. Mm. You know, not least the band who have great confidence in their own sound. At the same time, though, it pays the bills and it brings the band to top of the pops and to chart success but I think Whiskey in the Jar, it opens the door for other things. And then by the mid-70s, you have Jailbreak, an incredible album. The Boys Are Back in Town comes from that album, yeah. breaks the US Top 20, not the UK Top 20, the US Top 20. And even today, there are, there are brilliant Irish yeah. bands that will never do that. You know, they may have great but success it, in Ireland. It's so difficult for any European act at it, all to get into the US Top 20. It's still the barometer of success, isn't it? Mm. You get the heroic homecoming, homecoming Daily Man Park, 1977. That's a legendary status in kind of Dublin's folk memory of that mm. time. It's a little bit like the Woodstock Festival. Everyone claims uh, that they were there. And years later, Rolling Stone magazine, I think they captured what it was. You know, the melancholy tear in Phil Leonard's rich voice sets Tin Lizzy far apart from the braying mid-70s metal pack, projecting a dissolute sensibility above dueling lead guitars. This black Irish bass player chiselled out a distinct, lyrical, hard rock niche for his band. Mm. And that kind of guitar music, that heavy guitar music, even when it was going out of fashion in the late 70s, yeah. they maintained a, a very strong, very loyal support. It's funny actually that when, having done that famous Daily Mount gig, that when Bohemians got into trouble a couple of years ago for trying to put an image of Bob Marley on the away shirt because that, that they didn't just say actually you know what let's just get rid of the whole Rasta theme and actually just go with an image of Phil in it because they'd have had no problem there and I'm sure actually Jim Fitzpatrick would have been happy to donate the royalties and, and yeah, let them well, go, go well, on Daniel Lambert at Bohemians is a marketing genius they do have a, a mural of Phil in it and a mural of, of, of Bob Marley in mm. the ground today uh, by the early 1980s uh, it all begins to come apart though their heyday doesn't last as long as it, they'd like it does there's eternal tensions uh, within the band and it seems that the lineup of the band is constantly changing and it always reminds me a bit of Marky Smith in the fall, uh, that great Manchester band. Marky Smith said, you know, if it's me and your granny playing the bongos, then it's the fall. But yeah. it seemed that the, the lineup of that band was ever rotating. And Tin Lizzy were, were very much the Irish equivalent of that. Phil Linnett was always there, but whoever was behind him uh, was open to change. And substance abuse issues, you know, in the, in the, the, the early 80s sure. coming to the fore are really affecting Linnett's ability to perform. But what's incredible is that despite this, there's still moments of real brilliance. So Solo and Soho, which is this great, remarkable hit, uh, solo hit. And then Old Town, 1982, yeah, yeah, an incredible song. Brilliant. That is one of the iconic Dublin songs. Now, these things happen at a time when Lennon is really on the floor. And as his kind of dependence on heroin uh, intensifies, it just becomes harder and harder. And he's not the only person in the Tin Lizzy kind of circle uh, who's caught in the grip. I mean, mm. Scott Gorham, who's also a member of the band, also fights heroin. Uh, until 1985, he manages to kick the habit. But by that stage, you know, the band is gone. 
So there are many people in and around the band that are struggling uh, by the 80s. I, I remember hearing uh, an interview before with uh, the late Philomena Linnet. Actually, I think she always pronounced her surname Linnet, actually. It's mm. one of those those great debates about how it's supposed to be pronounced. But she talks about how uh, in Phil's latter days, she never really realised just how bad his drug habit was because he injected into his feet. And then one time when he was in real trouble and she said, Mammy, take off my socks. And he saw all the, the mm. track marks underneath his socks. That was really just a sign of, of how bad it was. But also, I suppose, how he had been able to visually hold it together until it was too late. Um, at the end then, um, he strikes a sad note though and he was much more open about his problems in his latter days. He does. I mean, he dies in January 1986 and the, the final band he's in, Grand Slam, just doesn't really register uh, with the music-loving public at all. But he does this very revealing interview with, with Hot Press 1984, Tony Clayton Lee and it's a deeply troubled soul. You know, he says, drugs are bad, they can cause you an awful lot of misery. Initially, you get some great kicks and it does give you different perspectives and you can find all the reasons in the world for taking them but there's just as many reasons for not taking them. In fact, there's more. And his mother, uh, Philomena, who we only lost earlier this year, mm. you know, really championed his memory and was very central to the, the campaign to get that statue uh, which was unveiled in 2005. Yes, so, yeah. you know, I think the stamps, while, while some will dispute the timing of the release, they're an instant design classic uh, and, you know, they're a fitting they're a fitting tribute to the artistic brilliance uh, of Jim Fitzpatrick and the memory of Phil uh, and the band as yeah, well. I actually can't believe that that statue's been there since 2005. It, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it seems right. to have been gone for longer than it's there it's, because so, someone always yeah. manages to drive into it and needs to be taken away for a while. Now that they've actually moved it slightly closer to the wall beside Brussels, I think it's, it's a little History's bit History's a frightening thing when you remember living through it. <laughs> it's not just the <laughs> Uh, Donald Fallon as ever uh, thank you very much Donald Fallon is a historian he's the author of the Come Here To Me blog and books volumes one and two of which are available in all good bookshops 